Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today we get to have a rousing discussion about limited atonement and preterism. How do these things fit together? Well, we don't know. We're going to talk through it, figure it out. Ruffle some feathers, perhaps, along the way, but have a good time in the process. And hopefully, most importantly, address the issue of how do we think through these issues in relationship to the chart? Stay tuned for that after the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Going to have some fun conversation today. Uh, before we get into that, Ken, do you want to share with people your money jar and tell oh, them yeah. what, that's, what that's about? Ken has a money jar. I have a money jar, and it's you got our saving up for a new it. bicycle. Yeah, it says Do Theology right there on it. So uh, we have this link for uh, buymeacoffee.com. Oh, I should have thought of the website before I even said anything about it. But uh, buy me It's coffee. on our link tree, and we'll, we'll put a link in the de- The link's always in the description, I think, for uh, Buy Me a Coffee. Yes, it is. So, um, yeah, you can support us by, uh, by buying us a coffee, and that helps uh, us with the podcast. It helps us... Uh, do different things. It helps pay for like our web hosting and stuff like that. Um, all that stuff costs money. We're we're happy to, to. We've done everything as we have done things up to this point, um, and we delight to do that. Uh, but there's more things that could be done if some of these expenses were covered that we would love to do. So uh, if that is something that you would want to do, make do theology material available to more people. You can give in that way. Now, some people might be wondering though. How does buying you a coffee help with all of that? It's because there is no actual coffee. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it, the idea is supporting us like once a month with the same amount of money you would spend on a cup of coffee. Three, four, five bucks a month. It just you, you sign up to say, Yeah, I'll throw that do theology's way and it ends up in our bank account or Ken's jar and we end up using it for the purposes that we have for the podcast. Yeah, and and uh, it ends up it ends up doing some cool things. So yeah, if that's uh, if that's something that you want to do, and again, it's it's for the benefit of helping get more do theology type material to more people. Uh, that's that's the benefit of it. So yep. that is that. All right. Well, today we are talking about limited atonement and preterism, and I think I'll I'll talk about at the very end uh, my upcoming book on head coverings. <laughs> So let's We're just see how all m- of the controversial stuff <laughs> in one episode. Let's see how many people we can bother today. But uh, as we start off talking about limited atonement, that's actually uh, the portion of the conversation you're going to lead, Ken, because you recently wrote a paper for a class taught by Dr. Michael Vlock at Shepherd's Theological Seminary on 
the limited atonement. Uh, yes. you, you wrote about limited atonement. So uh, ball's in your court, and I'm just going to sit back and pipe in with rude comments and snarks. Excellent. That's that's what I count on you for anyway. Uh, so yeah, so I did these, this research paper for this class. It was a systematic theology class, um, and I chose the topic of limited atonement. I, I had a, a sense, an idea of, of, you know, obviously this is something I've studied to an extent before, although I would say in my previous go-rounds of, of studying this topic, it's been rather cursory. Uh, I haven't really done as deep of a dive on this issue as, that I, as I did for this research paper. And I started out, I think this is the story of probably every, uh, every seminarian as he's writing a paper. You start out with this broad topic, and then as you go on, you realize there's no way I'm going to fit this into the page requirement needed, so you have to kind of keep narrowing it down. And I ended up focusing the paper on just a handful of passages rather than addressing the topic as a whole. But I did a lot of reading, uh, very extensive reading from all sorts of the spectrum on this issue that try to wrap my mind around things. And yeah, I, I, in, I, in your paper ended up being just on certain passages from the pastoral epistles. Correct. Was there, was there second Timothy? Yeah, there was second Timothy. In yes. There. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those, there are a couple from first Timothy and a couple from second Timothy and Titus. That was the focus of the paper. Yes. And and it was very good, very helpful uh, for me. Um, I think I think the the broader benefit for me was all the research and the study I did on the front end before I actually wrote the paper on those particular texts, uh, because I again I was just able to read uh, the argumentation. You know, I read some of the most um, referenced works on this subject from both sides of the spectrum on this. And and I'd, I'd like to believe that I entered this study with a, uh, a genuine openness to being convinced of wherever the data led me, uh, wherever the biblical text led me. Um, I, I hope that's true and <laughs> not just a, an imagined openness, but a genuine openness. That's what everybody openness. says. That's right. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, I, I definitely landed in a in a certain place, and um, but but you you landed in the same place you leapt off from. I did. Nothing was changed in your mind doctrinally in that endeavor. No, which not, was a pretty narrow well, endeavor, as we said. Sure, and and, and I would say that um, I would say my thinking has been refined through the process and my articulation of what I of I what I believe the biblical texts. Uh, would lead me to conclude. Um, I, I would have been able to make generalized statements before. I feel like I can make more uh, narrower, specific comments about different things. So, well, let's let's do it. What's yeah. your case against limited atonement? Get into it. That's it. So, I, I am not. I do not affirm limited atonement in the traditional sense of how many people seek to define limited atonement in the sense that Jesus Christ died. For the sins of the elect and the elect only, uh, that he did not die in any way for uh, the rest of mankind, um, I reject that, and, and there's a variety of reasons for it, and this is really going to be kind of a broad-level discussion here. We're not going into every single text that could possibly be raised up for this, um, but there's a couple of general principles that I think are true. Number one, I really wanted to give a commitment to letting the text speak and let them say what they needed to say without uh, trying to fit everything into theological systems. A lot of times people approach this with a lot of logical argumentation, and logic is all well and good as far as it goes. 
but I really wanted to simply let the text speak and do the exegesis on the text themselves and not uh, start with a theological presupposition that I'm trying to force these texts into. Because so, let's face it, um, you can you can craft, even just one individual person can craft a variety of theological systems that are all logical, that all viably explain what Christ did in the atonement, even though they're all different from one another. And then you can just pick one and say, well, that's it. But that's obviously not the way we should approach Scripture and Bible study. We should be submitting our theological system to whatever the Word says. And so we ha- we can't switch that order. Word of God comes before the system. Yes. And this kind of goes back to what we were kind of talking about a little bit in our last episode when we start talking about, um, you know, uh, I'm just trying to interpret the clear passages in light of the unclear passages, or, or the other way around. I'm, I'm interpreting the unclear passages in light of the clear Right. And and what we're actually saying is, well, I have my theological system and these passages don't fit my system. So I'm just interpreting these texts that don't fit my system with the texts that do fit my system. And I really desperately wanted to avoid that kind of approach uh, because I wanted to let, again, the text speak for what they say. And so my argument essentially is this. I think the texts that are used to defend limited atonement say less than what most limited atonements would say that they say. For example, we have this text in John chapter 10, and it's a very, this is a very common text that, uh, I'm going to use the word, uh, there's limited atonement, and those who uh, affirm that, limited atonementists, is kind of a mouthful. Uh, particularists is, a, is a kind of a hard word to say, but it's shorter, so I'll, I may use those interchangeably. So you could just say five-pointers. Uh, well, there you go. That's the most simplest way to put it. Five-pointers. So yeah, John 10, what, what does that good shepherd do, Ken? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lays his life down for the sheep. That's what the text says. And a non-five-pointer such as myself can say, yep, I agree. Of course, the shepherd does lay his life down for the sheep. The five-pointers have to say, well, he's, this is actually meaning the sheep only. He's laying his life down for the sheep and for the sheep alone and not to any to the exclusion of anyone and anyone else. But that's not what the text says. It doesn't uh, the five pointers are making that text say more than what it actually says when they say that this proves limited atonement. It does not prove limited atonement. And I would I say that that's true so far of every text that I've examined in depth uh, or even a cursory look over, Texts that are used to defend the concept of limited atonement that says that Christ only died for mm-hmm. the elect and the elect alone, it doesn't say the elect alone. It says, mm-hmm. you know, what what it says as far as mm-hmm. like the sheep, he died for his own. Yes, it's true. He died for his own. Like, that's true. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say only. Yeah, I, I've been scheduling a lot of tweets lately, uh, Monday through Friday at 6.30 a.m. That's when my tweets come out. <laughs> Because as you have thoughts, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm just going to schedule that. So that way I have tweets that just come out. And then I schedule them so far in advance that it surprises myself when they actually publish. It's like, oh, I thought that a few weeks ago. I forgot that I thought that. (laughs) But anyway, one of the tweets that's coming out, I don't know if it'll be before or after this episode is published, but is the, the, I stated that the problem that five pointers have with limited atonement is making the text say only. And if we had a text that very clearly said 
elect only or church only, like the Acts 20 passage, God shed his blood, he gave his life, God the Son gave his life for the church, or he purchased the church with his own blood, I think is what it says. If it said only, only the church with his Mm -hmm. blood, then okay, we're there. If John 10, he gives his life only for the sheep, then we're there. But just making the text say only is really difficult. And then we have texts that that expand, yeah. that, that seemingly expand. We have zero texts that seemingly limit, and we have multiple texts that seemingly expand. And that's the right. challenge. That, that's the challenge, and that's the flip side. So uh, the, the, there's lots of problem texts for the limited atonement is for the five-pointer that they have to restrict the meaning of what the text seems to say on its face rather than uh, embrace it for what it says. So there's a variety of texts. Um, let me pull one up here real quick. Well, while you're doing that, I'll just little point of order uh, on myself. I realized that I didn't phrase that exactly the right way and even not the way I wanted to uh, to say it <laughs> uh, when I said that God died for the church or that God bought the church with his own blood. Uh, God never has died. God the Son hasn't ceased to exist. He died in his humanity, was made alive in the Spirit. Acts twenty twenty eight. Paul tells the elders in Ephesus to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here it is, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So that's what the verse says, and it's always better just to read Scripture. Yes. So there's uh, there's those texts, um, and then there's, again, the, the problem texts for uh, limited atonement that... I have not found sufficient argumentation. I know, I know there's, there's ways that, that those who hold to five-point uh, Calvinism and limited atonement, that they figure out a way to explain these texts within their system. I do not find the argumentation convincing in the least. Uh, there's a couple of texts where I actually would say, usually, okay, so let me just say, usually the way that most of these texts are addressed is when the expansive language is used. Well, it's all without distinction, not all without exception. So it's all kinds of people, all categories of people, elect from every nation, elect from every class and people group, but it's actually not every individual in every case around the world. Yeah, It's every category of people, but not every person within that category. Right. And there's, there's a couple of texts where I think that argument holds water, where I do think it's legitimate to make that case. And one of those would be uh, the Titus passage uh, when it talks about... Um, uh, now I got to pull that one up real quick. Uh, well, Titus it, it, two eleven. Okay, it's a. Uh, I was just going to say it's the same theme that we get every tribe, tongue, and nation that you see in uh, was it Matthew twenty four, the Olivet Discourse. Mm-hmm. That every tribe, tongue, and nation there will be people who are saved. That every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented in the kingdom of God. Yes, N- we're not universalists. Okay, so every Christian recognizes that that just talking about all people within those or all categories, not every person within those categories. Right. And so you have a text like uh, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of, of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify himself of people, for his own possession, zealous for good works. 
this is one of the texts where the uh, all without distinction and not all without exception argument I actually think holds water because in the immediate context, he's addressing these different uh, people groups. He's addressing these different classes, urge. Uh, he's giving instructions to, to older women, to, to younger uh, men, to, to, well, to first older men, then older women, younger women, younger men, bond servants. Uh, he, so he's addressing all these different people groups. And uh, he, uh, in verse 9, he says, Urge bondservants, the slaves, to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing, for good faith, uh, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Verse 11 then begins with that gar. It's a grounding statement for the reason why I'm giving you this command, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And it seems to be that, I think there's a legitimate case to be made, that that's all these different kinds of, of categories, social classes, all these different things. It's, it's, it's for all. Does that mean limited atonement is true? And I think the reply to that has to be no, because there's still other texts that have expansive language where I don't, I'm not convinced of the all, uh, all without distinction argumentation. So 1 Timothy chapter 4 uh, in verse, um, oh, I'm scanning it right now. Where'd it go? Uh, verse 10, for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. <laughs> There's an expansion here of, or that, that, uh, that is in this text, the savior of all men, especially of believers, I don't see how the distinction can be made of, well, of all elect people, especially of believers, that, that doesn't make, that doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. And, and there's different ways that people that, so like the word especially, there's some people that try to make say, well, he actually means namely, the savior of all men, namely believers. But that uh, is yeah, a like, very, go like ahead. Paul's defining all men by saying believers. Right. Yes. And that's a very, Mm, it's a stretch uh, at best. Uh, the the exegetical data you you have to there's there's a couple of texts where the word that's translated as especially in the NASB here uh, there's there's a couple of texts where you could make the case that 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 same word could be translated as namely, but it's still tenuous at best. And then so to take that word and try to insert it in here with that meaning based off of other dubious texts, it's like, I, I think that's not, that's not a strong argument. Um, and so I, I can't embrace that. It seems to be as a savior of all men, without exception, but especially of believers, those who believe or receive the, uh, the new life that comes through the Spirit. Yeah. So basically, as we look at these texts, the the challenge for the limited atonement guy, like I said, is you, you got to prove that it's only right, and uh, and then you also got to prove where it does seem expansive that it's not expansive, and that's very difficult. That's a difficult hurdle to get over, but most guys get over that uh, through logic in a presupposed theological system, like. Uh, Oh, what James White always talks about, and Mike Riccardi's got a book coming out that I think is going to reflect this too, uh, because this was what his Shepherd's Conference message was on, this mm. past Shepherd's Conference. The Trinitarian harmony in redemption right. 
the father obviously didn't choose everybody and the son only does what pleases the father and they work in perfect harmony. So the son, this is what James White always says, the son's not out rebelling against the father by dying for more people than he chose. And so there's a harmony in election and atonement, uh, redemption coming to fruition in time. There's a, there's a harmony there where if you deny limited atonement, you're rejecting the Trinitarian harmony Mm-hmm. Uh, to which we just say, well, okay, just don't show me that in Scripture, right? I mean, I, I I, get where you're getting there logically, but we care about what Scripture says, and because we don't see that in Scripture, we have to end up with some sort of, like, multiple intentions perspective on the yeah. atonement, which is basically where you ended up, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, there's a theory called the multi-intentional view of the atonement where, uh, and this is where, again, you know, you... you, you uh, the, th- the point that you've made several times here is that you got to make the text say only, and that text just doesn't exist. Uh, meanwhile, it seems as though there are these expansive texts, and it also seems as though Christ's work is accomplishing multiple things for different spheres of of people and even creation itself. Whereas so, the the five pointer isn't going to really concede that, is that right? The five pointer is really just going to see it as purchasing the elect, period? Is that what you've seen in your study? There, there are a few five-pointers that would say that his death purchased common grace for the non-elect. Oh. Huh. But there's a split there. Not all five-pointers affirm that, but there's a few that do. That's really—well, it has to be a specific kind of common grace, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about how it rains on the just and the unjust— before he died, <laughs> uh, there was still rain falling on the unjust as a form of common grace. So it must be something really specific. But I, yeah, that's I, interesting. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So that that does exist. Um, I, and I think I think actually John Owen held to a version of that. I don't quote me on that because okay. I'd have yeah, to sure. I'd have to find that citation. But uh, I do believe that that's the case. Um, but but even so, so the. Uh, Multiple intentions. What what do you see it as? What what are the intentions? Well, so this is where uh, I think Bruce Ware has done a lot of good work on this. Um, And uh, there's actually, I'm going to, we're going to put a link in the show notes to this episode of a document that he's put out uh, where it's just kind of summarizing the issues. This isn't like a, like a big treatise on things. It's actually, it's just a six page document in outline format um, dealing with specific things. And in the multiple intentions argument, uh, he has he lists five uh, potential reasons for Christ's atonement. One is the traditional limited viewpoint that Christ did die to secure the salvation of the elect. Like that actually was yeah. is part of it. Uh, and, where, and we should not deny that because uh, there are some people who would some Arminian, more maybe extreme Arminians, who would say he didn't secure the salvation of anybody. Right. He just made it potential for yeah, yeah. right, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so there is there is a reality that. So, in that sense, you could say, okay, you know, some people don't, you know, they say, well, I'm not really a limited atonement person. I'm, I prefer the term particular redemption, right? That Christ died to redeem a particular people. Well, okay, like I can, in, in that sense, perhaps we could say, okay, particular redemption. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll let you have that terminology. That's fine. But then there's these other things that it seems that have uh, that, that Christ has died to accomplish these other things. Um, he he uh, 
Bruce Ware, this is how Bruce Ware articulates it. And I'm not necessarily saying that I'm on board with everything that Bruce Ware articulates, but here's how he articulates it. Uh, there's a limitless scope purpose that says Christ died for the purpose for the purpose of paying the penalty for the, the sin of all people, making it possible for all who believe to be saved. And so then he would pull out some of the texts that we would often reference for an unlimited atonement view, the First John 2, 2, that First Timothy 4 passage, uh, where uh, Christ died for the sins. He used the propitiation, but not for Aj only, but also for the sins of the whole world, etc., he goes on to say that belief in Christ is necessary, however, to receive the benefits of Christ's death and be saved, and only the elect are called efficaciously and so believe in Christ and so are saved. So he the, the death still makes it possible. There's still a, the potential and the possibility there, but because of um, efficacious grace, irresistible grace, however you people want to formulate that terminology, it's still only those who will come and be saved. So, but there is a limitless, expansive scope to that death in that case. Third reason he offers it it uh, gives provides a bona fide offer of the gospel. Christ died for the purpose of securing a bona fide offer of salvation to all people everywhere. And I, you're going to say something? Oh no, I was just going to mention that you made a pretty big deal out of that in your paper. I did. Um, as far as that's a really critical thing that's at stake here is if Jesus did not die for the non-elect in any sense whatsoever, then there is no authenticity in the offer of salvation. There's actually no legitimacy. There was someone you quoted uh, that talks about the legitimizing of the uh, offer of salvation that, yes. that it, it goes away. Um, Austin Brown mm-hmm. uh, is who you quoted there who said, in order for the gospel to be truly offered, there has to be a reality behind it that legitimizes the offer. Right. So if I'm offering you $1,000, and I know you're going to turn it down, does it matter if I actually have the $1,000 I'm offering you? And my argument, and Austin Brown's argument is, yeah, of course it matters. It's a fake offer. Even if I know you're going to reject it, it's not a genuine bona fide offer if I don't have the goods uh, that to back up my offer. And the five-pointer would say, well, yeah, of course, you don't know. You're just a creature, but God knows as the creator. But the problem is Scripture presents it's God making the offer through us. Right. Uh, we we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's as though Christ is making his appeal through us. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, so like you said, the five-pointer is going to say, well, we don't know who the elect are, so we're, we offer the gospel to everyone. And like you just said, of course, like, we do that, of course. We don't know who is going to be saved, so of course we offer it to everyone. But the issue is not with what our knowledge is, it's what what God's knowledge is. And the issue is what is actually, what what is offered by God and what are, what are we commanded to offer. So that is, I think that is a big deal and a big thing that I've, I have not yet read any uh, sufficient refutation and sufficient explanation for um for how the gospel offer can be genuine for whom Christ has not died in some sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another uh, reason, just uh, just condemnation. I think this is a big one, and I'm just, you know, uh, John 3.18 talks about uh, the reason why, uh, you know, Christ didn't die to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And this is the condemnation that they did not believe in the Son, 
right? That because they rejected the one for whom died for them, I said that 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 uh, the grammar was very wrong in that sentence. <laughs> because they are rejecting the one who died for them, their condemnation remains. The wrath of God remains on them, as that John three passage says. And then we see a cosmic triumph purpose in the reconciliation of the world. We see this Colossians chapter 1 that Christ makes reconciliation of all things. And in that passage, in context, all things is everything he has created. So that's all things. That's angels. That's Mm -hmm. the cosmic realm. That's that's, uh, all of humanity, all of creation. He has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's a very expansive uh, statement yeah. there, and so to, and, and it applies to all of creation. You know, we know that the the creation itself will be redeemed and and be restored. Well, that is also accomplished in the death and the sacrifice of Christ. Mm. And so we see these multiple intentions, and we see that the, the texts speak to this reality to say that Christ only died for just the elect and the elect alone, and nothing else ignores so much biblical evidence, in my opinion, or you end up distorting text to make them say things that they don't say. So then, limited atonement must be heresy then, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what what keeps it from being heresy? What What puts it in that secondary column, if we're thinking about our chart, as opposed to the primary column? Tell you what, in Bible college, I... I was really close to putting it in the primary column mm-hmm. when I was a zero point Calvinist. <laughs> I uh, I was like, uh, how how is this not heresy? So, can you explain that to someone who might maybe is thinking the way I used to? So, just let's let's uh, take a step back now, just just to enter the logic world for a moment. There's a sense in which limited atonement can logically make sense. For anyone who affirms that God knows the future infallibly. Yeah. Yep. You don't have to be any kind, any shade or flavor of Calvinist. You just have to believe that God knows the future infallibly because then God knows exactly who would come to faith in Christ and therefore die only for those people. Yeah. So there's, in a sense, there's a a logical basis for it there. It's the same way we argue against libertarian free will where it's like, well, we're not open theists, so the fact that God knows exactly everything that's going to happen means that there's limitation here. Uh, There's not total, utter openness for the non-existent future. We, yeah, we reject that. But the issue is, 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 as it comes back, even just taking a step from that, it's what do the texts say and, and working through it that way, and there are different individuals who are approaching the text, and and I should say, the people that there are many people who argue for limited atonement in a purely logical, systematic, theological way, without and then making text fit what they want it to say. There are individuals who are working and 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 uh, trying to be honest with the text themselves and trying to do faithful exegesis of the text and apply consistent hermeneutical principles to the text to get to their conclusion. And I disagree with their exegesis. I disagree with the reasoning for decisions that are made, exegetical decisions, interpretive decisions that are made, but they believe in the sufficiency and the authority and the perspicuity of the Word of God, and they're seeking to apply hermeneutics, and they're coming to a different conclusion. And they affirm the gospel, 
They affirm the necessity for belief and faith in Christ. They affirm that Jesus Christ died for sinners, right? That's that's the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. They affirm that. They believe that. Amen. It's a trustworthy statement, worthy to be accepted and proclaimed. And everyone who believes will be saved. That's the gospel message, right? Well, we affirm that. Limited atonement affirm that. These are exegetical interpretive issues that we're wrestling through and trying to figure out how do these things fit into the system knowing uh, these other aspects about who God is. So it's secondary. Secondary, yeah. Barely. Barely. (laughs) I do think there are some, I do think there are some serious issues when it comes to um, is is the gospel offer a bona fide offer for even the non-elect? I think that's a serious issue. Uh, on the flip side, they're going to say, you know, God's uh, God's nature, His power, and His consistency—that that's what's at stake. On the flip side, and they view that as a very serious issue. I understand that, but yeah. Okay. Well, anything else you want to say on that issue before we move on to preterism? I'm going to get <laughs> roasted. <laughs> or there's some people that'll say, "Oh, thank you so much for going through this." So, yeah, yeah. Who we'll get both people? sides of it. Well, um, you turned that paper in that you wrote on my birthday, November 3rd, and a couple of days after that, yeah, two days after that, I had my debate with the Preterist on November 5th with uh, a man named Elvin Chandler, and uh, we debated the topic, is full preterism true? So we obviously needed to find some terms there. but before I do that, I for the people who do know what preterism is, uh, <laughs> and, and this debate was on the, the Gospel Truth YouTube channel, by the way. If you just search Jeremy Howard preterism debate, you'll see it there. There are a couple of, I don't know, there, there are, I shouldn't say a couple. There are a few different ways that people arrive at full preterism. And the man I debated, the particular way he arrived at it was, I believe, through the black Hebrew Israelite movement. He calls himself like Elvin Israel Chandler. He puts he works Israel into his name in a few places online. And I've watched like a few of his Bible studies that he does where he's got like smoke or incense or I don't know if it's something he's actually smoking or something just in the room. It's very strange and his studies go on for a long time and he makes all kinds of interesting connections in scripture. And uh, anyway, he arrived at his preterist position through that. Uh, now, there is a very interesting strain of full preterists who arrive there through Reformed theology in the hermeneutics that are offered through Reformed theology. So we're talking about people who are five-point Calvinists, uh, people who usually started off with either an amillennial or a postmillennial view of things and then just pushed it to its logical conclusion and became full preterists. But uh, to define our terms... Uh, I'm, I would like to use Theopedia. I know who created the website Theopedia, and I, I like that website. Hmm. And uh, there's a difference between partial preterists and full preterists. But the word preterist basically means uh, past or completed. Um, preterism is a view of the end times that says the end times are past. Partial preterists, this is from Theopedia, which is the older of the two views, holds that 
Prophecies such as the destruction of Jerusalem, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, and the advent of the day of the Lord as a judgment coming of Christ were all fulfilled in about 70 AD when the Roman general, the future emperor, Titus, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple, putting a permanent stop to the daily animal sacrifices. It identifies Babylon the Great from Revelation 17 and 18 with the ancient pagan city of Rome or Jerusalem. And most partial preterists also believe that the term last days refers not to the last days of planet Earth or the last days of humankind, but rather to the last days of the Mosaic Covenant, which God had exclusively with national Israel until the year 70 AD. So um, partial, all forms of preterism, but we're seeing here partial preterism, all forms see 70 AD as like this time on the calendar when everything changed. Mm. When 70 AD happened, which was a, a terrible time, when, when Rome ransacked Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed, there was all kinds of persecution and murders and like millions of death deaths. When all that happened, that was the fulfillment of a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, basically, for the partial preterist, it's everything in Revelation 19 up to the bodily return of Jesus Christ. That's what a partial preterist would say. Any thoughts or questions for any of that so far, Ken? Well, I'm the uh, there's just there's so much in it. I mean, I'm the uh, one of the key texts I think is that uh, Matthew 24. This generation will not pass away till they see all these things fulfilled. And so there's that connection point, right, with uh, with eighty seventy with that, where they say all those things were fulfilled in that event, type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, all all the tribulation type passages for the partial preterist are totally fulfilled. Now, the partial preterist is going to hold out and say there's still a future bodily return of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, There's still a future resurrection of believers. And until that time, we are right now in some form of the kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom. Some are all-millennial, some are post-millennial, but they're saying that that's all. So you've got currently the kingdom happening in a spiritual way, and that's the total fulfillment of it. And then you have in the future a bodily return of Christ and a bodily resurrection of all believers. Full preterists just simply say, no, those things are past too. Mm. (laughs) So the full preterist says that the millennial reign of Christ, the messianic kingdom, took place between Jesus' ascension and 70 AD, which is just, I can hardly, I can't say with my eyes open for those watching (laughs) it. My eyes have been closed while I've been saying it. I just can't. That is bizarre. And then they go on to say, the full preterist goes on to say that in 70 AD, Jesus returned, and um, he didn't return in a physical sense to remain on the earth or to reign physically on the earth, but he returned in judgment, which is the fulfillment of Revelation 19 and all of the passages that speak of Jesus' coming. And ever since that time, believers have been resurrected over and over and over again spiritually. All believers are spiritually resurrected. There is no bodily resurrection awaiting believers. So we are now, according to the full preterist, in the new earth. There is now the new heaven, new earth reality that we're living in. And everything that you read in there just about is spiritual. It's not meant to be taken literally, the last two chapters of Revelation that talk about this. It's it's spiritual, and it's happening right now. That's what full preterism is. And so even though I believe partial preterism is 
dangerously wrong. It's in serious error. Partial preterism, to me, in many ways, is scary bad with how wrong it is. It is not heretical in the sense that full preterism is. Because with the partial preterists, they're still saying Jesus is returning. They're still saying there's going to be a resurrection of all believers. Uh, those things are they hold on to as yet future. The full preterist, though, goes all the way into heresy by saying, no, those things have already happened and we are now in the new earth. When you deny the resurrection of believers, you are in uh, a very, very bad spot. And we have that in the uh, New Testament when... Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, writing to those believers, don't get all worked up thinking the day of the Lord has already come. So he's, he's warning them, if you, if you get the timeline wrong on this, that's bad. I don't want you to get the timeline wrong on this. And he writes to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 2, and he talks about these guys who are disturbing people by saying that all of this has already happened, that the resurrection has already taken place. And their false teaching is going to spread like cancer, Paul says. So it's a false teaching that's cancerous. It's very, very bad. Scripture's testimony is against full preterism. Mm -hmm. If they're wrong, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they they could be right. You know, you, you say uh, that they it could have already happened, but if that's the case, you have to do some crazy hermeneutic stuff to basically make Scripture um, deny itself and say that the plain meaning of Scripture is wrong. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But I'll again stop and see if you have any thoughts or questions to add there. Well, I, I'm really interested in the uh, the comment that you made earlier about how um, sometimes full preterists get there through this, oh, this yeah. reform, you know, uh, amillennialist uh, approach, and they end up there. And I think I remember seeing your tweets about like I don't I don't understand why a partial yes. preterist just doesn't go all the way. And yes. is that you're planning on talking about that? Yeah, I'm, right. I, I want to hear those connections. Yeah. Well, so so basically, just to remind the listener here why we're talking about this is because I debated this this guy on the topic is full preterism true? Just so people are aware, if they want to go listen to it, it was only on full preterism. So we didn't talk about partial preterism. We didn't talk about the different millennial views, even though all of that is relevant. Uh, the topic was, is full preterism true? And he was actually extremely kind. We were both very respectful and uh, kind toward one another. And I think that was the number one piece of feedback from everybody who watched the debate was just how nice we were to each other. Because uh, it's so rare. I wish there was other stuff they noticed, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you see some of these other debates, and even some of your like, uh, how many debates have you done now? Four, four, and some of the other guys you've debated have just not been. Yeah, they've not abided by the rules of the debate, yes. and this guy did. And yes, that's, he did. That. Hey, it was great. It made a very enjoyable listening experience. Yeah, and it was a good experience for me, too. Uh, so I'm very thankful to him for that. He, yeah, he was very kind through the whole thing. Uh, there is, who is the guy? I got to look up his name. There, if you want to see, his name's Don something. If you want to see a preterist <laughs> through and through, someone who is like the full preterist, the, the face of full preterism, look up Don mm. Preston. For anybody listening mm. to this, Don Preston is the guy, and he is very sharp. He's very smart. He knows his Bible really well. Um, 
Don Preston is the guy. Now, I don't know his exact story. I'm sure it's out there and I could look it up somewhere or someone could find it. I don't know how he got to full preterism, if it was through Reformed theology or not. But uh, I know that he's... Go ahead. You might want to say it's uh, Dr. Don K. Preston. Uh, I googled Don Preston, and a uh, American jazz and rock keyboardist came up. That's uh, that's not the guy. <laughs> could be the same guy. Who's that? Uh, that one guy who debated James White. He was a pastor, and then he became an atheist. He's like a world-renowned jazz pianist. Uh, I think his name starts with a D too, but I can't remember. Anyway, um, yeah, if you YouTube Don Preston preterism, you'll find all sorts of stuff. But like I said, I don't know if he got there through Reformed theology or or how he got there, but I know that he partners with a guy named Michael Sullivan from time to time. Michael Sullivan is a very interesting person to listen to. He is a full preterist who absolutely did get there through Reformed theology. Mm. He uh, went to Master Seminary. He was uh, a dispensationalist. He... Um, I don't know where he was on Calvinism before uh, he started his theological evolution. But basically, he became Calvinistic if he wasn't already, and then he became Reformed. And then he just kept going. So he became Amil or whatever, and then he started seeing more and more in the theological system that he thought was inconsistent, saying, look, if if we're taking these passages passages spiritually why aren't we taking these passages spiritually and he just went all the way and i'll talk more about that in a moment but michael sullivan is his name and you can look up a debate he had with dr michael brown Mm -hmm. uh, from the line of fire radio program Uh, they had a debate on essentially preterism i don't remember what the title was but you can check that out too uh where it's kind of bizarre because i've never thought of full preterists as reformed calvinists i've always thought full preterists as like Pentecostal type crazies. Um, and and he's well put together, knows his Bible, knows theology, and speaks very plainly, matter-of-factly uh, mm-hmm. about these things. So anyway, uh, my debate was with the Black Hebrew Israelites on, <laughs> on is full preterism true? And, uh, you know, in my opening statement, I was basically... Um, just outlining the issues, uh, or the, I guess the key positions of preterism, full preterism, and then concluded with the problems. So the key positions of full preterism is that the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD is the interpretive grid for all of Scripture. 70 AD is the hermeneutic, which is just key. You have to understand mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That leads them to believe these things, and here are four things I'll rattle off. One, all prophecy is past. There is nothing left to be fulfilled. Two, uh, Jesus' kingdom is past. Again, as I mentioned, it lasted from his ascension to 70 AD. Thirdly, (laughs) um, Jesus returned in 70 AD, and we're living in the perpetual new earth now. And then finally, there is no future resurrection for Christians. So you're as glorified as you will ever get in your physical body, you have achieved the imperishable state, and all references to our resurrection have to do with a spiritual resurrection in the New Testament. When you think of uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that's probably the strongest, clearest passage for this doctrine, uh, or most straightforward about this doctrine in Scripture. And what it's saying there, the passage, is that you will be resurrected like Christ. Hmm. Christ is presented as the, the type of resurrection you will have. But that gets denied by the full preterist. And so, the, the, real, real quick, real quick. The, okay. the problems, I listed out uh, four problems that 
go again, that that uh, I have with these key positions. Number one, it cannot be defended from within the biblical text itself. It has to have outside sources. That's number one problem. Number two, Scripture rarely means what it says in this view. Scripture always has to mean something other than what it says. There's metaphor and allegory in the extreme going on here. Thirdly, the basic Christian presuppositions of Scripture's clarity and authority have to be repudiated. So that kind of is a summary of the last two points, but worded in a different way. And then lastly, it goes against all historical Christian teaching, which is a valid point. I mean, it's not not our first point, but it's still a valid point. So. Mm-hmm. Man, oh man. So there's there's so many questions that, that can ra- be raised, you know, just as you're thinking through, you know, in Orthodox theology and, you know, uh, when you're presented with these things. So especially on the point of, of resurrection, and I think this is, we're living in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. What happens to individuals when they die? is a question that I would have. Is there... That's uh, the, the first question I asked him, yeah. And is so in your debate now, now you, you, I know that gentleman gave his particular answer. Is there a, a more a kind of a unified answer to that question, or is there just kind of a bunch of different theories about what happens? There is not a real unified answer to that, though basically what you have to say is you continue on in a spiritual form... Uh, now, whether they say you're in the new heaven or you're still here and the new earth is like some sort of a ghost, I don't know if that's ever spelled out by anybody that that clearly. Interesting. But but yeah, and, I mean, you continue on, but your body doesn't. Your your body gets wastes away, and and this is really critical too because they have to say the same about Jesus. When you ask them what happened to Jesus's body at his ascension, basically. All of them say, well, the, te- they, the Bible doesn't tell us. And what they believe, which they won't come out and say until you really pull all their teeth out, what they won't say is they don't believe Jesus has a body today, but yeah. that he dropped his body and then spiritually ascended into heaven, mm. and the body it deteriorated somewhere. Mm. It's interesting. So uh, a, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast with, Dr. Gary DeMar, uh, who is... Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, individual who's very hostile to uh, to our theological convictions. Um, but he was on like this this weird podcast that... I say weird, It's that's a subjective term, I know. But that's what people say about us all the time. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> but it was like these different... There were four hosts, and these different hosts all had like different beliefs. One was evangelical another one had like deconstructed another one was some other faith another one was like not religious but they were having conversations about spirituality and religion and stuff gary demar was a guest on that show i don't know the particulars of 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 everything that they talked about but they asked him a question about whether what he believed happened at the moment of death and he was really ambiguous on his answer to that question and i did not associate him with preterism i associate with mm. him with a partial preterist position he's partial preterist plus the way he talked made me th- it, it you you mentioned that concept of that evolution of partial preterism into full preterism he seems to be moving or have moved yeah. or is there and just isn't public with it i don't know i don't, oh, and, I don't and know the, exactly and the full preterists at. know that the full preterists like michael sullivan who's reformed they know that and they they quote him they urge him they come quote on, gary demar keep coming 
Yeah, and they'll okay. say, "Come on!" Like Gary Demar's written there? this. Look, and they'll say, "Look how good it is." He just keep coming, keep coming. You're almost there. Huh. It's like, uh, you know, I'll sometimes tell people I'm a I'm a four point four nine point Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you know, just enough to where he can still round down. You know, uh, Gary Demar. If there were five points of preterism, Gary Demar would be a four point four nine point preterist. Okay. <laughs> uh, he is just almost there, and and I think my number's gone down. I think I'm pretty. Squarely a four point zero zero point Calvinist, but um, yeah, it is very interesting because here's the problem, and this is why you know I I don't understand why partial preterists stop short of full preterism. It's because they're already spiritualizing so much of the text. They're spiritualizing so much, not just Old Testament, though that's where the bulk of it is. New Testament also. Uh, take just one chapter of the Bible. Take Zechariah fourteen where we are told of the Lord's return, Jesus' second coming. He's got his human feet that he still has. They're coming back, boop, landing on the Mount of Olives, the mount from where he ascended, from where he preached about his second coming. He's coming back to that same mount, and it's going to be, boop, physically split. So you got physical feet touching a physical mountain that will be physically split. Now the full preterist says, that all happened in 70 AD, and it happened in a spiritual sense because they don't believe Jesus took his body into heaven. Right. He came back, he returned spiritually in judgment, and that's the fulfillment of that. Well, you know who else says that? The partial preterist. The partial preterist looks at Zechariah 14, and that has to either be past or present. It cannot be future for the partial preterist. Hmm. And so what you have to do with the rest of that prophecy where it goes on to talk about Jesus is ruling and reigning over all the earth, that Israel is being restored, that one-third of Israel that remains from Zechariah 13 that's carried over into 14 and they're being restored, that that has to spiritually mean the church somehow or something. Um, You have to go on and, and explain with a very strange interpretation what it means that Gentiles are involved in this kingdom with Jews all celebrating the Feast of Booths together, and that the nations that don't do this or the peoples that don't do this year after year, they're going to be disciplined by the king who is physically there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem that has been lifted up over the rest of the land that's been flattened to be like a plain. And so what does any of that mean if it's not literally future? (laughs) Uh, you, You have to just come up with a totally allegorical, metaphorical, spiritual interpretation of that to say that it was past or present. I don't understand why the partial preterist who's already doing that to Zechariah 14 and other passages that talk about Jesus' second coming, why aren't they doing that to the bodily return of Christ, the resurrection of Christians? Why aren't they doing it with those doctrines? And it's one of those blessed inconsistencies where I'm so glad they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm truly very, very thankful they're not going that far. But I don't understand why they're not. Hmm. I wonder, you know, just to get us into more trouble, the creeds and confessions, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's the guardrails that is keeping yep. them uh, because it's not, uh, it's, it's not a principled, consistent issue based on exegesis there there are theological convictions at play so yeah um which we're we're grateful for as you mentioned but that's our exegesis should be driving our theology not vice versa yep 
And to show how this is a, an issue of hermeneutics, as we wrap up here, I want to conclude with uh, a little less than a minute, a clip from that debate that I had where I'm asking my debate opponent about hermeneutics. Now, remember, he is not of the reformed ilk where he, he didn't get to uh, this position through reformed theology. But what he says here, several of the elements are at play with the reformed crowd too. So let me play this and then we'll discuss. When, when, when you're reading the Bible, how do you discover the meaning that God wants you to understand? Oh, first of all, uh, fasting and praying, and you got to look at the Bible from the eyes of ancient Israel. So you got to go through the, their documentation. They left a lot of commentary on how they viewed their scriptures. So I would say look at it from their point of view, and then you discern what the scriptures mean. Can you understand the meaning of scripture without those extra biblical Jewish commentaries? I would I would say a person definitely not in the 21st century. I, I would say maybe with a lot of fashion and prayer, but mainly no, because we live in different timelines, time zones. We, we, we talk different. This is an ancient Near Eastern world. We're in the modern Western world. We think totally different. So I would say probably not, probably not. All right. So basically what's being said there is you can't pick up your Bible and from the Bible alone establish a proper timeline of what's happening in the world. You have to, I mean, he mentioned prayer and fasting. I think he was probably hinting at personal revelation that God would give you, which, you know, the five-pointer Calvinist full preterist like Michael Sullivan, they wouldn't go that direction. Uh, but basically you got to study Josephus's writings and other ancient Near Eastern writings to see how they viewed certain events in history or even the Old Testament scriptures. Then you take them on their authority and apply that to the Bible and connect. You still have to do a lot of dot connecting. You have to do some of that, and then you come out with full preterism. That's the only way you can get there, hmm. to which I say that is a major, major problem when it comes to doctrinal development. If it's not sola scriptura, I'm going to have to reject it. Yeah, it, 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 it introduces a completely foreign authority to the text. Yep. A, a, an authority that was rejected by Christ and the apostles. I mean, like, like uh, you, you, you know, you look at uh, Jesus as he's interacting with the Pharisees, and he's rejecting some of their rabbinic traditions as he's interacting with them. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the authority that this gentleman— so, one of the authorities that this gentleman is yeah. referring to when he talks about, you know, Bish, the Bidrash and the, you know, the, the commentaries of the, of the rabbis over the years, uh, it's the, the Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, that is being rejected by Christ in the scriptures themselves. And, and this is always the dividing line between theological systems. It's hermeneutics. Yes. I, I also tweeted recently, talking a lot about my tweets today, I tweeted recently that I can't think of a... Uh, a, a Christian topic more vital and less boring than hermeneutics. Mm. <laughs> I mean, can you think of one that's that's more vital or uh, that's less vital and more boring than hermeneutics? Uh, hard, hard, hard to come by, really. Just because uh, it, it's like a total snooze fest when you try to read about it or talk about it. It's like, oh, we're, we're reading about how we read. Like, how boring <laughs> is that? But can you think of anything more important? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, okay, partial preterism, 
again, not heresy. I have really, really strong opinions about it, especially the Gary DeMar type of partial preterism. Full preterism is heresy. As nice as my debate opponent is, um, he's going to hell if he holds on to these views and he rejects what God has said. I mean, that's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. If he rejects the authority of God in favor of the authority of Jewish teachers, do you think the Bible talks about that sin? Yeah, that Bible Mm -hmm. talks about that sin a lot. And, uh, And he needs to hear what God has said and submit to it. So... That's where I landed on that uh, issue. Fun. Any other thoughts on preterism <laughs> before I make just a, a very brief note on head coverings? I don't think so. It's it's a very interesting, and it's very interesting. I mean, I'm interested to hear uh, any feedback of individuals who may say, "Hey, this is I'm a partial preterist, and this is why I don't go full all the way." Show at dotheology.com. Let us know. Yeah, show at dotheology. Dot com is our email. You recently saw our stats on Spotify for the podcast. Spotify did like a Spotify wrapped thing. Yeah. What was our number one episode for 2022, Ken? <laughs> By far and away, the one about head coverings, which yeah. is the title of the episode, the one about head coverings. Uh, now it was, on, got like 571% more than our other episodes <laughs> or something like that on Spotify. <laughs> now, uh, that's not necessarily the case across the board so right. on Podbean that has our stats from all places where people listen and if you look at youtube it's maybe not the top one there but it's really close i mean those were those were episodes that people wanted to listen to mm-hmm. uh, for obvious reasons it's a very curious topic it's a new testament passage that talks about something interesting and uh I've been writing a book on that, and I'm now done. I'm very thankful to say I'm I'm done. It's being edited fine uh, by my wife. She's super good at editing. She's almost done with it. We're going to do uh, formatting after that. It should be out by the end of the year, 2022, which will be All great. Right. It's going to be free. Uh, the e-version will be free immediately. I'm not quite sure what we'll do with print and all that stuff yet, but my goal is just to get it ready in an e-version first. It's a little over 24,000 words, and uh, it pretty much, (laughs) to the best of my ability, leaves no stone unturned on this topic because I've spent a ton of time in this the last year and a half or so, and it's the fruit of all of that study. I, I quote and reference so many different people um, in there. Pretty much any preacher or author or pastor you can think of, he's cited, quoted in the book in some form or fashion. Well, that might not be true, but a lot of them are. <laughs> and, uh, and and I've just put a lot of work into it, so I'm really excited for that to come out soon. And we'll talk about it on the show. We'll probably just do a special little small episode that we release at that time just saying it's out and how to get get it and all that stuff. But um, Uncovering 1 Corinthians 11 is the title, and... It'll be out really soon. Cool. Well, that's really exciting. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the final final product there. Um, I know you have spent a lot of time on it, and it's great. Yeah, it yeah. is. Uh, it is a very interesting passage that tests our metal, especially as Bible teachers. It really mm-hmm. tests us and exposes us um, in a lot of ways. And I I just hope it's used by God to um, help his church. That's that's all I want to do in life is be used of God to help his church. So, Amen. Well, the whole the whole head coverings thing, I don't know, we don't want to go into a whole lot here, but it in in my personal sphere of of um, 
conversations, I have found it to generate very healthy conversations about biblical manhood and womanhood. And yeah. I find that to be very beneficial and edifying for all involved. Yeah. As long as people are willing to have the conversation, when people aren't willing to dig into the text, there's just not much you can do. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's for any topic. True. So, yeah. Very good. Well, if you want to reach out to us, as, as we mentioned, show at dotheology.com. Let us know why I'm wrong about limited atonement. Well, let us let Jeremy know why he's wrong about preterism. Reach out, um, and we'll we'll tell you why you are wrong for thinking that we are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what, an, what a warm invitation. <laughs> oh, yeah, we, we would love to hear from you. love to interact with you. Uh, show at dotheology.com we're on you know Facebook a lot of people send us Facebook messages that's mm-hmm. I'd probably say the uh, it might be 50-50 between people reaching out through Facebook Messenger or reaching out through email uh, we do have Twitter as well although we get a little less engagement over there um, but yeah any way you want to reach coffee. out to us you could buy us a coffee fill that jar up get it get it going and uh, yeah we look forward to doing more theology with you another mm-hmm. time And until next time, we're asking you, no, we're commissioning you to do theology. (laughs) 